Hi everyone, and you're listening into the Shagulala Salami Show. This is Show Set in a Virtue Cafe. I'm your host, Shagulala Salami. Um, today is a really lovely day, and I'm not actually. I, I think I found a good way to not talk about the weather. We're going to talk about, I'm going to start off talking about books. There's a book that I've been trying to read for a really long time now. I even put it on my Goodreads page as the book that I'm currently reading. Um, but for some reason, I haven't even looked more than the first page of it. There just doesn't seem to be enough time in the day to do a million and one thing that I want to do. Um... But never mind. Um, hope you're all doing very well today. Um, Anywho, um, so let me see. Who have I got here with me today? Uh, this is Steve Lima. I'm talking to you from Anchorage, Alaska. You know, it's about 5 a.m. in the morning here. We got snow on the ground. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the Alaska Gold Rush and my book, Dead Men Do Come Back. Can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Uh, sometimes technology always lets you down. Yeah, I was saying it was, it's a pleasure to meet you, for, um, Stephen, from Alaska. Um, so tell me, what do you do? Uh, I am working as a uh, school teacher and freelance writer here in Alaska at Historia. There's, there's not a lot of money in history, so what you do is you have to have a, a full-time job and then do the history on the side. Ah, that, that's interesting. What class um, do you teach? Um, I teach uh, college classes in the evening, and during the day, I substitute teach at uh, high schools and elementary schools. Oh, okay. That sounds interesting. You sound really busy in the background. What are you doing? Um, I'm putting my pages together so that I can read a portion of my book. Ah, what book is this? Uh, Dead Men Do Come Back. It's a... Uh, it's a murder mystery that's set in the Alaska Gold Rush. Um, a lot of people don't know that much about the Alaska Gold Rush because they think the Klondike Rush in Canada is the Alaska Gold Rush. But the Alaska Gold Rush lasts about 70 years, and it covers an area about one-fifth the size of what you people call the continental United States. Right. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, so what genre is your book? I'm sorry? What genre is it? Uh, it's a murder mystery. It's historical murder mystery. It's set in 19... It's not set in 19.3. Okay. Okay. That's up. And where's my manners? This is supposed to be a virtual cafe, right? You know, I, I say to people that it's a very futuristic, you know, thing, Star Trek kind, you know, kitchen virtual cafe. Uh, so what would you like to drink? You can have anything you want. Latte, of course. Okay. Now, considering that I don't drink latte and I don't drink coffee, I feel like this is probably a very stupid question to ask, but I'm going to ask anyway. Like, are there different options with, with latte? I know with coffee, and again, I don't drink coffee. You know, with coffee, you would say, okay, do you, how do you like yours? Milk, no sugar, you know, that sort of thing. With a latte, is it just a latte or are there different options? Oh, latte is pretty much, it's a pretty standard drink. Um, it's, it's coffee with uh, a lot of uh, milk or cream in it. I prefer the, the non-fat. Right. Okay. Non-fat. Great. Okay. So give, give my virtual kitchen um, a minute um, and I will go get that sorted for you. In the meantime, um, what, where are you going to start your reading from, you know, from your book for us today? 
I'm just going to go ahead and start with the first section to try to give you a, a lead up to why it is so different. Um, I, as a writer, uh, one of my, my motto is to, if you don't have something unique, you have nothing. And so I try to write something that is completely different. With a murder mystery, that's pretty hard because there's a lot of different ways that people have started their murder mysteries. And I, I feel I came up with something that was completely different. Okay, that sounds, that sounds um, interesting. So, yeah, so go ahead now. Okay, I will go ahead while you get your coffee. How's that? That sounds perfect. Okay. Dead Men Do Come Back by Steve Levi. It all started with a cadaver in the middle of the night. Sometime between the time of my last patrol around Juneau waterfront and before the sun came up, two teamsters were pounding on my door at the Gastineau Mining boarding house. In my dreams, I was flat on my back on a hot sand beach in Cuba and about to get a cold beer from a near-naked senorita when I was rudely pulled back to the reality of Alaska in the summer of 1903 in an ice-cold boarding house room just large enough for a bed and a dresser. Talk about a rude transition. I hadn't even gone for a swim yet. <clears throat> but when a man is the United States Marshal, there are no office hours. When duty calls, he has to respond. But I could not respond half naked, so I hopped out of bed and did a little dance on the chilly floorboards as I pulled on my trousers. Then I answered the door. Yeah, I said, trying to make it appear I was wide awake. Got a floater, Marshal. Must have come in with a tide. Just what I needed at what? Three, four in the morning? A floater. Why can't people die during the day? I was wide awake by the time I got to the dock. It never gets jet black at night in Alaska during the summer, but it was still dark by the definition of dark in the lower states. It was going to get a lot darker when I got down to the water next to the pier pilings. I could not wait for the sun to actually come up. If I did, the tide would change and the body would get dragged out to the Gastineau Channel again. The only time to get it was now, in the dark, from the cold water. A drunk standing at the end of the Juno dock had spotted the body bobbing in a mat of cigar butts, chewing tobacco tins and empty whiskey bottles. I could only guess what he had been doing at the end of the dock, the drunk, not the corpse. The cadaver had come in with a tide and was floating face up. The face was a pasty white staring at the full moon. The reason the drunk had spotted the floater he had told to Harbor Watch was it reminded him of his wife. Drunk had not said whether this was nostalgia or wishful thinking. It didn't matter to the Harbor Watch. He told the Teamster to get the United States Marshal. Teamster got a buddy first because the Teamster and his buddy wanted the contract to pull the body out of the Gastineau Channel. Double time because it was after 5 p.m. and before 8 a.m. Double men, double time. That's what the buddy system is all about. Dealing with dead bodies is my job. I'm the United States Marshal for this neck of the woods. Anything that happens from Yakutat to the Canadian border and all the way south to Ketchikan, I'm John Law. Onshore, at sea, or in the belly of the mountains, I'm the man with the badge who gets the call. Murder, robbery, salmon poaching, selling liquor to the Indians, or fishing without a permit, I'm the man with the badge. There are actually three city policemen in Juneau, but all they do is handle drunks. When a dead body shows up, they disappear. Pull her in pieces, bones, parts, or greasy residue, it's my job. This time, reviving the body, retrieving the body, was just not going to be so bad. It was all in one piece. It was in pretty good condition, too. The waters of southeast Alaska are frigid every time of year. They preserve the body. At least I thought it was going to be easy when I first saw the body. Yeah, it was in one piece, 
I could see arms and legs and a head. That meant it had, been a, it had not been a mining accident. Probably somebody went overboard from a fishing smack. Dead bodies aren't that unusual around Juneau. Juneau's a mining town and we run three shifts a day, 2,000 men in and out of the tunnels every eight hours. All kinds of things happen in the bowels of the mountains. Things go boom, tunnels get flooded, or carts flip, fields go crazy, men get drunk and make mistakes. But when any one of those things happens, the bodies usually come out in pieces. Sometimes a piece of a body is all I get, if I'm lucky. Other times I don't even get that. An explosion two years ago took away seven men. One moment they were cracking jokes and the next they were gone. So was the tunnel, all 127 feet of it. What happened? No one know for sure. Best guess was that methane just built up and one man lit a cigar, maybe. All it took was a spark of some kind, then they were gone. To this day, their wives and girlfriends still believe those men are coming home. They firmly believe that one day a wall of a tunnel will come down and those seven men will just come walking out like they are going off shift just two years late. Or they are still down there tapping on stones, hoping that rescuers are on their way. When there are no bodies, there is always hope that a miracle will occur. But if you're a miner, you know the miracles are very few and very, very far between. There was only one way to get the body out of the Gastineau Channel. I had to go in after it. Sloshing around the glacier-fed waters of the Gastineau Canal in the darkness is not a pleasant task. Nothing like the warm ocean of Cuba in my dreams, that's for damn sure. I had to go in boots and all. I needed the protection of my trousers and shirts from the barnacles on the piling. The water was just as cold as I knew it was going to be, and my body weight took me to the bottom of the five-foot breakwater. As I expected, the rocks on the bottom were slick. The Teamsters and I had set up a dozen oil lanterns at the end of the dock to light the body. That was the best way we could do, but it wasn't enough. I was sloshing around in the dark. Fortunately, we were working with horses, and they were used to being on docks in the light or in the dark, and the Teamsters had no problem getting the back of the wagon to overhang the lip of the dock timbers. Then they set up a block and tackle flush to the edge of the dock. It took them an hour, all of it double time, to brace the frame. Then I was lowered into the channel. That was the way I went down, and that was the way the body was gonna have to come up. The Teamsters didn't really care how long I stayed in the water. They were on the clock with the United States government, double time, even better. Uncle Sam's checks were good as gold in Juneau, anywhere in town, anywhere in the United States, actually. A lot better than mining script the muckers got for tunnel work. The mining script wasn't even as good as the paper was printed on. It was only good in Juneau and could only be used at the company stores, all three of them. With sky-high prices, like I said, United States government purchase orders were as good as gold anywhere in the U.S. of A. The good news with the low tout the good news was that it was low tide and the water was only five feet deep. The bad news was the same. In 12 hours, the waters would be 20 feet deep, and that would not have helped me very much. Had I waited, I would have had to swim out for the body. That would have made it harder because it's tough to swim when you're being slammed against pier pilings. In the shallows, all I had to do was wade through chest-high waters. At least that was the plan until I discovered that the rocks just below the surface were slick with algae and moss and mud and the consistency of quickstand. After 10 minutes of sloshing around in the frigid, solid, shallow water, I found a firm foothold on one of the slimy boulders around the pilings near the bottom of the pier. Only then could I reach over and drag the body toward me through the flotsam. The corpse was male, old, heavy, and very dead. 
Even in the dim light, I could see the bullet hole that had made a cavern of the man's left eye socket. The instant I grabbed his sleeve, I know there was going to be something very unusual about this murder. The body was frozen solid. So that's the start of the book. I'm sorry, I muted my mic. That went really quick. That was enjoyable, but that went really quick. Well, I want to want to get give your readers a taste of the book. The thing that I have to understand about uh, Alaska, particularly during the gold rush, is that everything in Ju everything in Juneau where this takes place is on the Gastineau Channel, and the Gastineau Channel is three feet deep part of the day, and then it gets to be twenty five feet deep the other part of the day. So what happens is if you live at Juneau, you got, in those days you had to live with the tides. Mm. That's, that's, that's quite interesting. So were you part of it? Um, you know, the gold, gold rush or was that before your time? I know, cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Alaska gold rush is very interesting is because not that many people know that much about it. It, it covers an area that's almost uh, one-fifth the size of the continental United States. It's huge. And yeah. there are all kinds of different cities that just exploded out of the tundra. People were there for about three years digging gold out. And when the gold ran out, they just walked away from the city. So we have a lot of ghost towns up here. Right. How did you get into it? What was your inspiration for writing it? I'm always looking for something different. And when I started studying the Alaska Gold Rush, I found out that nobody had really done anything on it. Everybody thought that the Klondike Rush was the Alaska Gold Rush. There are lots of books on the Klondike. Um, Jack London and Robert Service, you know, immediately spring to mind with most people, but that's the Klondike. And the Klondike Gold Rush is in Dawson. Dawson is the Yukon, in the Yukon Territory of Canada. And most of the strikes in Dawson are within about 100 square miles, you know. But when you start talking about the Alaska gold rush, you're talking about uh, gold rushes that go from Juneau to Barrow. Uh, most of your listeners don't know how large Alaska is, but look at it this way. From Seattle to get to Juneau, the capital of Alaska, you're going 2,000 miles. To get from Juneau to Anchorage, where I live, it's another 2,000 miles. And to get from Anchorage <clears throat> to Barrow, which is the furthest north city, it's another 1,000 miles. So when you talk in Alaska, you're talking a huge area. People don't realize how large Alaska is. Yes, that's massive. So across, it's like, what, 5,000 miles? Um, at one time, well, it's larger than that is because if you look at your map, you'll see that there's, uh, we have what's called the Aleutian Chain of Islands. And the Aleutian Chain of Islands are 1,200 miles from Anchorage. So what happens is if you go to the last island out, it's 1,200 miles from Anchorage to the west. Juneau is 2,000 miles which, to the south, and Barrow is 1,000 miles to the north. Ah, uh, okay, okay. That makes sense. Um, but so what was, I mean, was your interest, because not a lot of people know stuff about the gold rush, or what it was something else? that made you decide to write a book on the, you know, on the topic. What was your motivation for writing it? They, uh, I, I wasn't really looking at doing a book on the gold rush until about uh, 15 years ago. And what they did is they opened up a national archives 
uh, here in Anchorage. Prior to that, if you wanted to write about the Alaska Gold Rush, you had to go out and find the newspapers, if they still existed. And that's pretty much what you had to do. But when they opened the archives, the federal archives, they opened up all of the official reports from all of the towns that had magistrates and judges and things like that. So what happens is you could go back to any one little community, find the magistrate's record, assuming they existed, and read them. And then you would get a day-to-day -day kind of look at what happened in some of these little towns. Um, People hadn't seen that before because prior to that, all of those records had been in Washington, D.C., and unless you wanted to fly to Washington, D.C. and spend, you know, a month or two every day in the archives, you wouldn't be able to see them at all. But when they moved the records to Anchorage, what happened is I could go into the archives, sit down, go through the microfilm, I could go through the rec reports, I could go through revenue cutter service records, marshal's records, court records, and they were all here in Anchorage. So what happened is I was very, very lucky. Lucky because I had the time, unlucky because I was unemployed at the time, I was able to go through and take a look page by page of like court documents. So here is a murder, and then you could go through and you could read the trial transcript, and you could look at the, at the photos if they had them, and Marshall's reports and everything else. So, you know, I got a real nuts and bolts look, you know, at the Alaska Gold Rush, so nobody else had done that before. Yeah. Okay, okay. That that sounds that sounds um quite interesting. So I guess you know having access to it. But I don't know if I'm being really, really slow today, but I'm really trying to get inside your mind. Um I mean I know that you said, you know, it was fifteen years, you know, before you actually well, fifteen years ago, if I'm hearing you correctly, before you started, you know, doing anything. But what was the process? Um I mean I know you then waited to had access to the you know, archives were sent over to um, Alaska, but what, at what point, right, did you think to yourself, I could actually write about this? The, well, I started out, I started out uh, a long time ago. I've been writing for a long time. I started out doing um, articles and looking for interesting tidbits that I could turn into articles and then maybe novellas. And, and, and as you find around Alaska, the Alaska Gold Rush, people hadn't done anything on it, so almost anything that I found was brand new. Um, i give you an example. One of those little stories that I wrote up is in Dawson, I know that this is Klondike, but in Dawson, they had a, a, a young man die, got shot, and uh, when they went through his clothing, all they could find was some letters to his parents, and they wrote a letter to his parents and said, hey, you know, just want to let you know your son is dead and buried here in Dawson. And the parents were very rich. So what the parents did is they, they sent a coffin, a iron coffin from like Boston or Philadelphia. And they sent it to Dawson to say, please put the body of our son in there. Well, so this coffin, this is a lead coffin. And it's sent across the United States, gets put on a steamship in Seattle, goes all the way up to Skagway. It goes all the way to Dawson. In those days, if you know the Klondike Rush, you know one of the most famous pictures there is these people going up the, the ice stairway step by step by step. Okay. And so this coffin has to get dragged up that, has to be carried. This is hand carried because there's no railroad at that time. 500 miles all the way to Dawson. It gets to Dawson. It gets there a year after the kid has been shot. They have no idea where the kid's body is. Yeah. And... So what they do is they just go out and find some bones and they throw some bones into the coffin and send it back to Boston. 
They said, well, we're really sorry about your son. You know, here is his body. Well, they had a, they had a doctor, you know, looked at the bones and he said, these aren't even bones of a white man. They're Indian bones. So these parents now say, okay, fine. We can't find our son. We don't want the bones here to be buried in Boston or Philadelphia. So they send the coffin back across the United States. Now this the coffin goes back across the United States. It gets put on a steamboat, goes all the way to Dawson, up over the Chilkoot Pass again. And when the coffin gets to Dawson, they dump the bones, but all of a sudden they've got this coffin. They don't know what to do with it because nobody owns it. So what they do is they put it up for auction. And some guy bought it and took it into a circle, which is in Alaska, and they turned it into a bathtub. That was Alaska's first bathtub. Oh. And, and stories like that, I was going, no, that's a pretty neat little story. And yeah. so I would write that up, and I would go ahead and send it in. And, you know, people were saying, oh, this is pretty good because we've never seen stuff like this before. Yeah. And if you go through the record, you can find here are some cases where a guy went into this little tiny uh, boom town, and he cheated at cards, and they hung him. Yeah. And then here are all of the records of the names of the people involved saying, yes, he, you know, we had a little minor's council and uh, we found him guilty and we hung him. And I'm going, that's fa that's, to me, that's fascinating because you're looking, you're getting a snapshot of, of a little town, a moment right smack dab in the middle of the gold rush. And after putting a bunch of these together, I said, you know, this would be a great, you know, it would be a great book if you put it all together. And that's, I began putting it together and eventually it, it became a book. Um, the nonfiction book, it's Boom and Bust in the Alaska Goldfields. And it was the first book on the Alaska Gold Rush that really covered the whole, the, the entire spectrum of the rush. And then from that, I am now doing uh, fiction. And I'm taking these, a lot of these stories and I'm putting them into fictional settings. Okay, that sounds quite interesting. Well, gold rushes, and no one, no one has done anything on the Alaska Gold Rush, so almost anything that I pull out of the newspapers, no one has seen before, which, which makes it nice is because it's fresh. Yeah. So do you write it because no one else has done it? Or, but because I can guess that you're quite passionate about this story. So it's not, you know, so I guess it's something that you're passionate about or because you felt that no one else has done it, you were going to do it? Or, was there, or is there another story behind why? I'm always looking for something that is unique, entertaining, and interesting, but that nobody has done before. Um, of all of the murder mysteries that I have read, and I read a lot of them before I went into, uh, wrote uh, Dead Men Do Come Back, and I had never come across somebody who had been shot and frozen. There are people that they find the bodies and the body is frozen. You know, but that's because they've just stored it someplace. But no, but not one where these these guys wanted the body to be found. And it's very odd because the body is both shot and frozen. And in the 1903, that's that's odd. No, that's that's truly um, amazing. See, now I feel like an Oliver Twist, though. Can you read us some more of the book? Just so that, because I guess I I feel like I'm getting more vested into the story now. I want to I want to hear some more of it. <laughs> Okay, you want me to read more of the story? If you don't mind, if I feel like I want to know what's happening now, you know, because when, when you, you know, someone's really passionate about something, you're like, oh, okay, well, let's see what's going on. Okay. All right, well, I'll give you some more here. The, the uh, part of the things that I do, uh, both in uh, history and in fiction, is I try to find newspaper columns 
that uh, that kind of snapshot the moment. Because in Alaska, what happens is you're, the Alaska was so large that everybody is reading the Alaska papers. So if you've been Nome, you can be in Nome, and you can be 3,000 miles from Juneau, but you're still reading the Juneau paper. So the Juneau paper has to go ahead and have material in it that's, that's relevant so that people in Nome will read it. There are very few newspapers in Alaska. And so what I did is I had, and I created columns. So what happens is when you read the column, the column kind of tells you what is going on. So I'll go ahead and read a column, and then I'll read a, a chunk from uh, the second chapter, okay? Okay, that sounds good. Okay, so what I'm starting out here is, this is the first section that I'm gonna read, and I'll, I'll tell you when I come to the end of it, is a hypothetical column from the Juno paper. Okay. It, I, it's the Juno, Daily Juno Facts, and it's called, the title is Bloodsuckers of Alaska United. Once again, the Daily Juno Facts is alerting the Alaska public to a gathering of bloodsuckers. Gloomy Gus Summers was seen in the presence of none other than His Holiness Bartlett Thane, the twin vampires of the working men of Juno. Bloodsucking is their stock and trade, and in that trade they are very, very good. Bankers and mine owners are like lawyers and grave robbers, kith and kin, joined at the hip, all supping in the trough green with money and turned red from the lifeblood of working men and women in Alaska. Both metaphors are appropriate in this day and age. What this town needs are unions, nay, a union, a miners' union that will stand firm for the miners, the working men who feed the empires of Summers and Thane. The Daily Juno Facts is pleased to see that at least one group of muckers is coming to their collective senses and demanding cash instead of scrip. Praise to the Almighty, not the Almighty Dollar, but the Almighty Lord, that muckers in Juno are coming to their senses. Script is of no value, has no value, and will never have value. But there is an evil lurking in the demand for dollars instead of script. That will mean that dollars will have to come from Juno to Seattle, lots of dollars, which means lots of criminal elements will be watching closely. Robberies will increase. And what do we have to defend the working men from the miscreants? None other than United States Marshal Gordon Whitford, a man who spends his day walking the city in the evening before bedtime and occasionally during the day. Will he be enough to protect the honest people of Juno when cash and carry is the game of the day? Who knows? The daily Juno facts hope so because the fate of the working class depends on the likes of United States Marshal Gordon Whitford to actually do his job not just collect the paycheck for sitting in his office and taking an occasional foray about the city. It's, okay, it's a little note here. It's important to understand money in Alaska during the Alaska Gold Rush. If you worked in the mine, you didn't get paid with cash. What they did is they gave you a piece of paper that was called script. So it said, you know, Joe Smith worked for eight hours and he earned X amount of dollars, and they give you a piece of paper called script, and then you would go into the store with this piece of paper, and you would say, okay, I've got so much money on the credit of the mine so I can buy something in the mining store. Yeah. The problem is that that script was only good if you had it in Juno. so if somebody had to go to Seattle, even if they had script, when they got to Seattle, the money was worthless. So, mm -hmm. the, so the miners were saying to the the, the people working in the mines were saying to the mine owners, look, we want actual cash. Well, to get actual cash from the United States government, you have to get it out of a bank, and you have to get it out of a bank in Seattle. So the miners, the mining companies were not interested in that. They wanted to go ahead and keep giving the script. Otherwise, they'd have to go to Juno, get a loan, get this cash, and then bring it back to Juno. Yeah. 
Okay, and so there was a real problem between the miners and the mining companies as to actually what they were going to receive for money. And once money actually makes it to Juno, both in real life and in my book, you start having robberies because if you robbed and stole script, everybody would know who you were. But if you rob and steal money, you can leave town with the money and no one will ever know. Yes. Okay, so I'll give you some, I'll read some more of the book. Thank you. We don't get a lot of murdered folk around here. Dead, yeah, but not murdered. Most of the regular dead, those that die of natural causes, are old people, mostly natives. And a lot of old white folks die up here. Living is rough. A lot of old white folks do not die up here. Living is rough in the Northland, and those white people who can retire do it outside in the United States, the lower states. So we don't have a lot of old white people living here. The only people, old people around here are the Indians, but they don't spend a whole lot of time in Juneau. But when they die in town, I get the call. Accidents are the number two cause of death. Most of them are white people, mostly men, and almost all of them muckers. A mucker is somebody who works in the mine. Okay. Working in a mine is very dangerous work. Anything can go wrong down there, and when it does, someone usually gets killed. Occasionally, we have a wagon accident when some kid gets run over, but by and large, most accidents happen in the mine, and those people are white people. We get an accident in the mine. We get an accidental death in the mines about once every other month. A mucker will get crushed by an ore cart or buried under a cave-in. Once we even had a couple of guys who got kicked to death by a mule. None of that's unusual around here. Most common cause of non-mine death up here is snake bite. That's the euphemism for death by alcohol or doing something stupid while drunk. There aren't any snakes in Alaska, unless you count the governor. Murders are pretty rare, particularly in Juneau. During the gold rush, it was different kettle of fish, but that was then. Today, we're a sedate city. People don't go around killing each other. It's just not civilized. And if there's any one thing Juneau prides itself with being, it's civilized. That means two forks on the napkin at supper time, regular church service for the Baptists, hospital for the Indians, and on election day, even the socialists vote. Like I said, we're a civilized city. We've even got electricity, and a lot of homes have hot and cold running water. Welcome to the District of Alaska. We'll be a territory soon. Not that it's going to make any difference, but we're just a district now. In Alaska, nothing is easy, least of all getting a 250-pound corpse out of an ice-cold channel of rising water. Death adds weight to the body. The body itself was uncooperative, which was no surprise, and in this case, the frozen state of the deceased made getting a rope around it a Herculean task. It was not like trying to put a rope around a log in a river. The turning of the tide did not help either. As the Gastineau Channel deepened, I found myself half-floating, trapped between the dock pilings and the incoming flood. My footings, such as they were, disappeared, and by the time I could get the rope around the feet of the cadaver, I was treading water. Try that when you're fully clothed wearing work boots. It took several tries to get the body onto the dock, and that was with two steamsters working with a block and tackle. It was an ongoing struggle. Twice, we almost got the body to the top of the dock. The first time, the rope had been wrapped around the legs properly. Then there were two feet of slack that the body found. When the slack popped, the teamsters were unprepared and the rope burned their hands. They weren't wearing gloves because you're not supposed to need gloves to get a cadaver out of the channel. When the rope started to burn their hands, they let go, and I had a 250-pound body dropping 20 feet onto my head. It wasn't a direct hit, but I knew I was going to have some purple bruises on my ribs for a while. 
The second time, the body was too heady and had to be lowered back down. We were lucky because a shift was just coming out of the mine. We were able to get three or four muckers to give us a hand. That was the only way we were able to get the corpse out of the drink. Then they pulled me up. By the time I got on deck, the body was in the wagon. And by then, I was shaking uncontrollably from the wet and cold water. But duty had called. None of us, teamsters or muckers, recognized the bloke. That didn't come as a surprise because the body was that of a fisherman. But how it became frozen was anyone's guess. Why he had been shot before he had been frozen was anybody's guess, too. Getting the body into my office was just as difficult as getting it out of the channel. At least in the channel, the water had helped. The body floated. No such luck when it came to moving a body into a building. Not only, was the corpse, not only was the corpse soaking wet and frozen, it was also stiff as a board. It took six teamsters to maneuver the body through the back doorway and onto the pine table I used as a morgue slab in the back room. Even with six men handling the body, the task was formidable. The teamsters didn't look at it that way. They considered it double time pay as long as it took, as long as they finished before 8 a.m. I got another surprise as the teamsters were manhandling the cadaver into the office. The body had been found floating face up in the channel. As I had been sloshing around in the shallows with the rope, I had seen that the person had been shot in the face, in the left eye specifically, and I had assumed that's what had killed him. But when the teamsters carried the body into my office face down, I saw there was a second gunshot wound. This one was in the back, in about the middle of the right shoulder blade. It was a large caliber shot. It was a larger caliber shot than the shot to the eye and looked like a 30 caliber, possibly larger. Couldn't have been a shotgun slug from the size. But all I could say for certain was that it was not the same caliber as the bullet that had hit him in the face. As soon as the body was set to rest on the pine slab, I sent for Doc Theobald. Actually, I had to write out the purchase order for the Teamster first. As long as the paperwork was completed by 8 a.m., they were due double time. This time, they earned their money. We were all soaked to the skin, and I was just starting to warm up from the fire in the office. The only difference between them and me was that my clothes were choked with brine, and their boots were dry on the inside. As they left, I stripped off my clothes and hung them on the line I had stretched across the office. The Yukon stove in my office burned year-round. There was plenty of heat to dry the clothing, but the shirt and trousers were going to be stiff from the salt when they dried. I have to take my clothes early to the laundry this week. But then again, I could legitimately pay with a United States government voucher. Fortunately, it was summertime, so I didn't have to worry about a wet parka. That would have taken days to dry, and the salt water might have ruined it altogether. I dumped the water out of my boots and slid them under the stove. Then I squeezed as much salt water as I could out of my wool socks and flopped them directly on the stove. As long as I kept my eye on them, they were not going to burn. But I'd have to flip them occasionally, like pancakes. Black and gray pancakes. My canvas trousers had taken quite a beating on the pole, on the pier pilings, and there were some rips along the seams. They'd have to be sewn. I was going to need a new belt. The old one had seen its last day, so I cut the buckle free and then dumped the leather into the stove. Waste not, want not. My work shirt and undershirt were not torn, but there was a button missing from the breast pocket. I thought that was a bit strange. Here I was sloshing around the frigid water, being slammed against duck pilings, having my pants ripped on barnacles, and the only damage to my shirt was a lost button? How could that happen? When I got down to my shorts, I saw that I was badly bruised on the left side where the corpse had fallen on me. There were ruddy streaks running along my ribs and scratches on my forearms from being slammed against the barnacles on the pier pilings. 
All in all, I was beaten and bruised, not to mention battered from shin to shoulder. My feet were undamaged thanks to the boots, and when I looked in the mirror, I saw a gash running, gash turning purple that cut across the forehead over the left eye. I squeezed water out of my shorts and tossed them onto the stove beside the socks. I kept an extra pair of dungarees in the office when I had to do dirty work so I didn't have to stand around naked. I didn't have an extra shirt in the office, so I just put on a fur parka. I have to wait for my boots to dry before I went anywhere. That wasn't so bad because I wasn't going anywhere soon. It wasn't even 8 a.m. yet. So here I was, standing in the back of my office, barefoot in a parka with trousers that were burlap and cotton, looking down at a corpse that had been swimming in the Gastineau Channel for God knows how long, and I couldn't move the corpse until Doc Theobald arrived to make his medical determination of the death. Even then, I still had to wait for my clothes to dry. For the first time, I got a good look at the corpse. There was no real mystery as to what killed him. He'd been nailed twice with two slugs of different calibers. He took one in the back, the other slug hit him in the face. That was odd. When someone wanted to kill a man, one slug usually did the job. Why two? Two men? Why two shots of different caliber? I had to assume that the first shot was one to the back. Had, it been, had he been a smaller man, that would have killed him. Maybe it did. I didn't know. But the second shot was odd. Why shoot a dead man? And why in the eye? And why freeze the body solid? There had to have been, that had to have been after the bloke was dead. It didn't make any sense to have the man lie down on a slab of ice and then shoot him. Most likely he was shot twice. And then the body was dragged to the Mendenhall Glacier. That, Hi, Steve. Is that enough? That's more than enough. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. That, that was really, really lovely. I guess anyone else who's reading, you know, who's listened to it, they can go get a copy for themselves then, not let you do all the reading. Okay. <laughs> but thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. It okay. Was like a movie, you know, playing, playing in my mind. Uh, because when you were talking about the script, I remember watching a movie and I can't remember for the life of me what the name of the movie was, but it was talking about scripts where they were doing like IOUs and stuff. So I had that image in my head when you were reading and talking about scripts and stuff like that. So, no, that was that was really lovely. Well, I hope you, I'm glad you enjoyed it and I hope your uh, listeners enjoy it too. So if someone wanted to get a copy of the book, where can they do that? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's Dead Men Do Come Back. And my name, uh, like you said, is Steve Levi, L-E-V-I. And uh, the, uh, I, hope you, I hope people enjoy it and I hope they learn a lot about the Alaska Gold Rush. I think, I think we did. We did. Well, I can speak for myself. I can't speak for everyone else. But uh, it was nice to learn something new today. Um, so that, that was really lovely. Thank you. Um, and how can people connect with you if they wanted to find out more about you? If they want to find out more about me, they can uh, go to my webpage, stevelevibooks.com. And there's a, there's a place for you. I have blogs there that you can read about history. And you can, they, there's a place to go ahead and contact me on the, uh, on the website itself. Fabulous. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And fingers crossed we might get you back sometime soon in the future. I'm here. Just let me know when you want me to come back. Fabulous. Well, everybody else, it's me, Shagulala Salami, and it's been the Shagulala Salami Show. Until next week, see you later.